Well, if you would, open up to the book of Ruth. We are continuing our series that we began last week. The title for the messages that I have for this series, uh, Devin's preaching next week, so I have to come up with his own titles, although he's welcome to use mine. But the title that I had last week, and I think it really does provide an overview of this delightful and challenging book, these four chapters, the title is The Perplexities and Perfections of God's providence. The perplexities and the perfections of God's providence. And that was the title last week. So I've added to the title this week, The Perplexities and Perfections of God's Providence (laughs) 2. It's profound. (laughs) Ruth is... A story. We must read Ruth as a story. It is a narrative. It's a story about folks just like you and me. It is a story about ordinary people. It is a story about ordinary people facing ordinary circumstances who only get to see part of the extraordinary outcome of God's providence in their lives. They, they don't get to see the full outcome of God's providence in their lives. It's a story filled with tragedy, and it is a story filled with redemption. It is it's just an amazing story. The ordinary characters in this story, Naomi and Ruth and Boaz in particular, never know the ultimate purpose never learn of the ultimate purpose of God's providence in their lives. And, and even neither did the narrator of the story. He, he gets a little further because as you read the very last verse in chapter 4 in Ruth's story in the book of Ruth, he mentions, the narrator mentions the coming birth of David, who is soon to be, who will be the king of Israel and who we know is the precursor to the coming of the King of Kings. And so the narrator has some idea, but he doesn't know as well. And so these folks, these three characters, the the narrator, uh, they don't know the perfect end to God's eternal plan in their lives. They don't know how all the experiences, all the dark providences that they faced come to a conclusion. Although in their own lives, there is some conclusion. In their own lives, there is some delightful ending to what they've experienced. They don't know the end that we do. We are, we are Christians reading this story thousands of years later, and we have the benefit of knowing what God has done in the lives of these people and what it means to us after the cross. But these folks don't know that. And oftentimes, even in today, the world that we, which we live in, the explanation 
for much of what takes place in our lives, it has meaning beyond our lives, but it may well be hidden from our view. What you're walking through at any given moment, what dark providence you may experience, what bright providence you may experience, the ultimate meaning of that may be hidden from your view. Most likely, it will be hidden from your view. You won't know. You may not know how God intends to use the providences of your life, dark and bright, a hundred years from now, two hundred years from now, or whenever until the point of our Lord's return. You don't know. Ruth's story has a very specific lesson for us that we must apply to each chapter in this story, and particularly, I think, to our own lives. The, the voice that tells the story always knows more than the characters involved in it. So the narrator who is telling this story always knows more about the story than the characters who are involved in the story. And God is the one who is telling our story, and he knows far more about our story and where it ends up than we will ever know. And as we read through Ruth and as we see the details of God's providence, we see the details of the story. The characters don't know what we know. And as God works in our lives and the details of our lives are being experienced by us, and God is sovereignly telling our story, we aren't aware of where all this is going. Yeah, we know the ultimate end. Because through the death of Christ, through his atoning work, and through our putting our faith and trust in him, we know the end of the story ultimately. But a lot happens between that. And Ruth helps us to know how to navigate in the dark providences of our lives. So while you and I live in the perplexities of providence, which that is often what happens, God's providence, the word providence means to see before. God sees before all that is going to happen in our lives because he has in his sovereign wisdom and in his goodness, he has planned all that goes before but we don't see it. So while you and I live in the perplexities of providence, the wise and the wondering and the trying to figure out what is going on, there will be many times we won't understand and we just have to trust that his perfections are exactly that, perfect. That what is happening, what will happen, what we wonder about, what might happen, are all under God's perfect providence. It's what he has planned. And there will be a time when he brings our story to a close. 
And all of us have perplexities. You know my granddaughter who is autistic. I, I don't know the perfect end of her story. She's seven years old. She does not speak. She lives in a world that nobody else has been into. What possibly could be the end of that story? It's perplexing. But it fits into the perfections of God's providence. And what her story means 10, 20, 30 years from now, only the Lord knows. John Murray, in his book about God's providence, said this, We may not be able to understand our present condition or sufferings because God's providence works on a grand scale. Job had no idea that he was the focus of a battle between God and Satan. God was, as it were, showing off a trophy of his grace. Job thought that his life was useless. At the very moment when he thought all was lost, he was doing the greatest thing of all. He was glorifying God. It was 22 years after he was thrown into the pit that Joseph discovered the reason why. Puritan author Thomas Boston was not able to understand the purpose behind his sea of troubles in Ettrick. And I love what he says here. He was daily exercised about God's providential dealings. Daily exercised. Oh, isn't that often our story? We are daily exercised by the providences of God in our lives. And the book of Ruth is here to help us be, pre- be prepared for what might be. It is why this book has such meaning for us. It is why the truth of this scripture has such power for us. It is designed to help us understand a little bit more about God and his providence. It is here to help us understand a little bit more about the perplexities of God's providence in our lives and the perfections of God's providence in our lives. It's here to build faith in us towards God and his good and wise and sovereign plan for all that we experience. This delightful story is a treasure from God to help us know how to interpret and how to respond to his providence in our own story. That's my proposition this morning. This delightful story is a treasure from God to help us know how to interpret and how to respond to his providence in our own story. The difficulty of God's providence in in our lives is knowing how to rightly interpret what is happening, especially, especially when the outcome is not clear or may never be known. How do I interpret 
what I would, I might not ever know. How do I interpret these dealings, these providences, these dark moments when I may never know what the ultimate outcome is? And it's what we, it's what we don't know that often most troubles us. If you, know, if you have surgery, I've had a knee replacement. My granddaughter, who's two years old and cannot say gramps, calls me gimps. Somehow the name really fits. <laughs> I go into knee replacement surgery and I know the outcome. Hopefully, <laughs> I come out alive and I'm walking. That's, that's fairly simple. But what about a Mike Stogstill who is diagnosed with Parkinson's? Mike doesn't know the outcome. What are all the providences are going to look? What's that going to look like? Or a wayward child? How do we how do we navigate? How do we understand the dark providence of a child who has turned his back not only on God, but on his family? It's what we don't know about the outcome is that what most often troubles us. But that's where Scripture helps us interpret because what we do know about God's hidden smile behind his dark and frowning providence is designed to sustain us, is designed to encourage us. William Cooper's powerful and incredibly insightful hymn speaks it all. He says this, he wrote in his hymn, here was a man who suffered from the deepest depression. Here was a man who attempted suicide. Here was a man who knew God and yet could not find God in the midst of his, of his dark providence. And life was dark to this man. And he writes this, he writes, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. We don't ride upon the storm. We're in the storm. We're in the boat getting tossed and almost capsized by the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs. That's the providence of your life, bright designs, and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Now that is one of the most (laughs) and greatest perplexities of God. 
He hides a smiling face. Why? What is it I've done that God hides a smiling face? Or what is going on? Or what is God doing? His purposes will ripen fast. I love that line. Unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. We become the interpreters of God's providence. We become the interpreters of God's will rather than God being the interpreter of his providence. We become the interpreter. And when we do, it is blind unbelief and it scans his work in vain and it is sure to err. God is his own interpreter writes William Cooper, and he will make it plain. He will make it plain. Where in God's providence can we find hope? And as we read the story of Ruth, we're going to find hope in the dark providences of God in his character. We're going to find it in the word that is actually used in Ruth. It's a word that you are maybe familiar with from Lamentations. It is the word hesed. It is the Hebrew word hesed, although if you're Jewish like me, you actually pronounce it chesed, which most of you Gentiles probably cannot do, (laughs) but this Jewish guy can. We often hear the word chesed when referencing Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love. That is the word chesed there, steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. But the definition of chesed is far more than just steadfast love. Daniel Block, in his commentary, says this, The depth and range of, of meaning of the word chesed cannot be captured with a single English word. It is a term of endearment and commitment, incorporating all the positive attributes of God, love, covenant, faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, and loyalty demonstrated in acts of devotion, especially toward one with whom one enjoys a family or covenant relationship. Behind all of God's providence in Ruth and in our lives is this word chesed. Not just the steadfast love of the Lord, but a term of endearment, of his covenant faithfulness, of his mercy, of his grace, of his kindness, of his loyalty to us. It is God's chesed that informs the dark providences in Ruth's, Naomi's, Boaz's life, and our life. And this is how we must interpret providence, both dark and bright. So look at Ruth chapter 1. We began in the first five verses last week. Look at verse 6 and read along with me. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law. Naomi had, just by way of reminder, Naomi had moved to Moab with her husband, Elimelech, 
because of a famine in Bethlehem, and they leave the land of promise, God's promise. They leave Judea. They leave their place of worship in Jerusalem, and they head towards Moab because they heard there's food in Moab. And as they're there in Moab, the story moves quickly. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. Then after they marry, the two boys of Naomi also die. And Naomi is left a widow. She's left without a heritage. She's left without children. And we pick up the story in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. <clears throat> Three points this morning. What we can learn in chapter 1, the rest of this chapter, first point is this. Even in dark providence, grace is everywhere. 
even in dark providence, grace is everywhere. Verse 6, Naomi's tragic life, and it is a tragic life. There's no denying that what Naomi experienced was tragic. She follows her husband. She goes to a foreign land, a land where God is not worshipped, a land where there is just unbelief, where God literally does not exist for the people around them. And her husband pretty much immediately dies. Her sons marry foreign women, which was forbidden in Scripture. And then her sons die, and she has no heritage, no lineage, no name, no son to carry on the name of the family. She's stuck in a foreign land. There's no family around to care for this widow and these other two young widows. She is far from home. It is a tragic life. Tragedy pops up like dandelions on a lawn in her life. But good news in verse 6 suddenly appears. Naomi hears that these wonderful words that the Lord has visited his people and given them food. Not just the Lord was there, somebody encountered the Lord. or No, the Lord. The provision of food was attributed to the Lord. That He has appeared. That He has provided. He has visited His people. And so, Bethlehem, the, the house of bread is what Bethlehem means. The house of bread that had no bread during the famine has bread again. And so Naomi makes this decision to return. She hears, interestingly, she hears the good news in, of all places, Moab, a, a place where God does not exist. It's not like there's conversation about Yahweh. There's no signs in Moab, Yahweh lives. There are no synagogues in Moab where you can hear about the work of Yahweh. And yet somehow, in the fields of Moab, word comes, good news comes, that the Lord has visited his people and provided food for them. How this good news makes its way to her is not explained in the passage, but it is an evidence of God's grace in Naomi's life. It is an evidence of bright providence illuminating the dark providences that Naomi has been experiencing. You know, in the fields of Moab, as a widow, she must now go and scrounge for food. That is why she's in the fields. And this is gospel news to her. God has visited his people. We see that in the incarnation. God has visited his people. The good news that Christ has come. And Naomi hears this good news and this good news begins to draw her back 
to Bethlehem, to the land of promise, the place where God Almighty dwells. His grace, God's grace, always finds a way. Even in the darkest of places, it brings hope. Naomi begins her journey home with both her daughters-in-law, who desire to go with her. So she set out from that place, verse 7, where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. They went with her. There is an evidence of grace there. These are Moabite women. These are women who grew up in this country, women who, whose families still live in this country. And yet, there must have been some special relationship with Naomi that these two women would make their way on this journey back to Bethlehem with Naomi. It's remarkable that they would leave their family, that they would leave their friends and their familiar surroundings out of loyalty to Naomi and go to a place where as foreigners, as Moabite women, they would not be accepted. The, the Jewish culture was not an accepting one for foreigners unless they became proselytes and came to know the living God. And so they go on this journey aware that when they reach Bethlehem, most likely they will be second-class citizens. And as they journey, Naomi realizes the sacrifice, I think, that they're making, and out of care for them, urges them to go back. Verse 8, but Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to your mother's house. And then she says these words, it is a blessing that she speaks upon them. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead, my sons, my husband, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest. And that rest is not just laying down after being tired. It is the Sabbath rest that we read about in the book of Hebrews. She's wanting them to find rest in the Lord. Each of you in the house of her husband. She is praying the blessing of them remarrying. It is a kind blessing. Now, Orpah is convinced to return. And it's not, Orpah didn't make a selfish choice. She actually just made a reasonable choice. She went back to her family. She went back to her country. She went back to her gods, little G. She went back to the place that she knew, which would have been natural for her. But Ruth does not leave. Ruth responds in such a passionate manner that Naomi has no response for her. This is a passage that has been used in innumerable weddings. And although it can be used in that way, there's more to this passage than a wedding vow that is being made here. Ruth is responding out of her loyalty and love 
for Naomi. And it exceeds, I mean, her, her loyalty, her love for Naomi exceeds the, the, the prospect of being a second-class citizen, exceeds the understanding that she may never marry in Bethlehem and may never have children. There is no promise of provision. She understands the sacrifice of following after Naomi, but more importantly, she understands the sacrifice of following after Naomi's God. It is because God has intervened in Naomi's, in, in Ruth's life. The good news of grace has captured Ruth's heart. The good news that brought Naomi back to Bethlehem, this good news was far more expansive in Ruth's life. This is literally Ruth's conversion confession. Your God will be my God. Your people, my people, your God, my God. This is grace revealed in the darkest of places. Ruth has been converted. The grace of God has revealed itself in Ruth's heart. She has been regenerated. What is even more remarkable is that Ruth has come to believe this in spite of Naomi. Look at verse 13. As Naomi is speaking to her daughters-in-law, urging them to go home, she says this, Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi's perspective on God is that he has treated me exceedingly badly. It is bitter to me. It's exceedingly bitter to me. And she doesn't stop there. Look at verse 21. I went away full. She's not talking about full stomach. She's talking about, I had a husband. I had sons. I had a heritage. I went away full and I'm coming back empty. No husband, no sons, no grandchildren, no heritage, no, no son for the, the family name to be carried on. It's over. So I went away full and the Lord, the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty? When she says the Lord, it, it is Yahweh, but here it is Shaddai. The Almighty has brought me calamity. And it is under those words, under that view of God that Naomi speaks, that Ruth gets converted Grace is always present in dark providences. And grace is always more powerful than dark providences. And grace reveals itself in dark providences. Ruth has become a disciple. And like all disciples, she left everything behind in order to follow after God. From a human perspective, this is simply amazing. From 
God's providence has powerfully worked to bring new life to Ruth. And through Ruth, God will continue the royal lineage through David to the Savior so that the good news that we read about right here becomes good news for you and me. This, this is the story of the gospel for us. That in dark providence, God's, God's gospel was revealed even in the midst of a woman who was embittered towards the Lord, who felt like the Lord has testified against her. God's goodness, God's good news. God visited his people again. And this is, this is just the providential workings of God to get to a place that allows you to be sitting here today. Even in dark providence, grace is everywhere. Secondly, in dark providence, sin is often exposed and character refined. In dark providence, sin is often exposed and character refined. Now, please, we must be, as a church, as believers, we must be ever vigilant to not reduce God's dark providences to it's all because I sinned. That's not all providence is about. While choices do have consequences, they most importantly have divine oversight. Ruth is not a story about punishment, but about providence. One of the purposes of dark providence in our lives is to expose our sins so that our character can become more Christ-like. God uses dark providence. He uses it to further, most importantly, his purposes and plans for the good of all people. But he also uses dark providence to further his purposes and plans for you and I individually because he loves us and cares for us personally. In Ruth 1.1, it exposes the self-reliance that Elimelech had in making the decision, I'm going to go find food in Moab. I'm going to leave the land of promise. I'm going to leave the presence of God because I need to find food for my family. And though on the surface, it looks like a great decision because, yeah, he's a man and he's responsible to lead and to care for his family. But it also revealed a lack of trust in God and God's ability to provide even in the midst of a famine. So Elimelech goes his own way. And yes, choices do have consequences. But you've got to be careful that you don't put it all together. Last week I said A plus B equals C, and I was corrected. That's why I told you I'm not a math major, never have been a math major. Uh, a squared plus B squared equals C squared. So the person who brought that to me, are you happy now? And so, Sin doesn't always bring dark providence. God is merciful. God is merciful. 
sometimes our sin, what it does is actually expose the incredible mercy of God, not just the dark providence of God. So we must be careful. Yeah, there are consequences to choices, but we must be careful. Now, in, in verse 13, we see that dark providence reveals something in Naomi. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She becomes exceedingly bitter towards the Lord for her circumstances. Because Naomi could not see how her suffering had a purpose in God's redemptive plan, she resented God. She complained about him rather than complaining to him. How often in our trials, our suffering, our dark providences, our perplexities, how often do we just get angry with God? We get embittered towards God because we don't see the purpose behind are suffering. Michael Emlet said this, as Puritan author Jeremiah Burroughs points out, there is a difference between complaining to God, which scripture actually warrants, and complaining about God. In the Psalms 13, 77, 88, you see the heart's cry to God in the midst of distressing circumstances. This is the kind of warrant Scripture gives, honest wrestling with integrity before the living God. But that is not what is going on with Naomi. Naomi is so bitter that when she arrives in Bethlehem, Verse 19, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now understand that question, is this Naomi? Naomi still has family in that town. She still owns land from her husband in that town. She was well known in that town. Is this Naomi? There has been more than 10 years of severe suffering in Naomi's life. And she's not the same woman that she was when she left. And no doubt, working in the fields of Moab to scrounge for food and suffering under the providence of God, her appearance somewhat changed. And she's been embittered. And if you've ever been around somebody who has been filled with bitterness, there is a visible change that you can see, a hardness around the eyes and the face that just eats away at them like a cancer. And these women who have known Naomi said, is this Naomi? And she responds immediately, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. She complains about God. She blames God. She sees no good in her life. She says, I went out full. Yeah, I had a husband. I had sons. I had a heritage. 
I had a future, and now they're all gone, and now my life is empty. Now, what must have Ruth thought as she stood next to these women as Naomi is telling her story? Because Naomi's first words are this, I went away full, and now I came back empty. But Ruth is standing right there. Ruth left everything behind to be with her. Ruth gave it all up. Ruth was loyal. Ruth served her. And Naomi speaks as though Ruth does not even exist. That is how bitter she is. And God exposes this in Naomi. You know, bitterness is... It's a, it is a sin that is rooted in self-righteousness. A self-righteousness that declares inwardly and sometimes outwardly, if I were God, I would never let this happen to me. If I were God, this was not the way I would deal with it. And we do that with others as well in relational difficulties. I would never do to that person what they've done to me. Yes, you would. (laughs) You're quite capable of doing that. And if maybe we look back on the video of your life, we probably would see where you've done that. But that's the self-righteous belief behind bitterness. Naomi has missed the many evidences of grace that have come her way. That's the nature of bitterness. It blinds us to all the good God has done. It blinds us to the people that he has put around us. Bitter people tend to separate themselves from the very community that is there to help them. Dr. Cicely Saunders said this very simple statement. She said, suffering is only intolerable when nobody cares. But for Christians who live in community, suffering should not be intolerable because there's a community around us who cares. Circumstances very often reveal what we believe about God. It will show us what our ultimate goal in life is. Is it to remove pain or is it to redeem pain? Is it to take away pain or is it to transform pain? You know, praying for God to relieve pain is good. Dark providence doesn't mean that we just say, bring it on, Lord, more pain. No. We pray for healing. We pray for relief. Those are good things. And God hears us. And God does spare us. And there are times when God brings relief immediately. But Scripture makes it clear that there is a benefit to suffering. There's a benefit to experiencing suffering. There's a benefit to being relieved of suffering. Because our suffering always occurs in Christ. And it's embedded in the story of Christ. What Naomi failed to see about her pain was that (laughs) there was something bigger at stake here. 
God was at work in Naomi's life and in Ruth's life. And, in, and we will soon see Boaz's life. Michael Emlett says this, the sum total of Christ's sufferings and our sufferings are a necessary part of moving God's redemptive agenda forward unto the consummation of his kingdom. In other words, your suffering today, your pain today is actually a part of the engine that drives forward redemptive history. It drives forward pushing back the curse Suffering and glory, that's the currency of the kingdom of God. God knows our suffering hurts. He understands the pain we feel. And he's designed these dark providences for our good to expose our sin and to refine our character. No one should ever argue that Naomi's life wasn't tragic or painful. But in that she lost sight of God's goodness. The evidence of grace that God visited his people and word came to her, good news came to her, was an evidence of grace. That two daughters-in-law would be willing to go with her to her own land was evidence of grace. That Ruth would not leave her was an evidence of grace. That Ruth would be born again is an evidence of grace. And as we read the rest of this story in Ruth, we will see the grace of God explode onto the pages and onto, into the lives of, of these, these women and a man named Boaz. <sighs> Naomi needed to learn that present suffering has present meaning. Present suffering has present meaning in the light of God's present purposes. Your dark providences mean something. And then thirdly, and my favorite point, there is always an end to dark providence. There is always an an end to dark providence. It doesn't last forever. Now, that doesn't mean that there's always an end to your circumstances. There's a difference. Typically, providence remains dark because of how we respond. You see one person who is suffering under the agony of cancer. And yet there is a bright joy to their countenance. There's a firmness in their faith. There's a hope that resides in their heart. And you would look at them and not see dark providence. And yet you see another person who as well suffers under the agony of cancer. And their their voice is brittle. And their heart is hard. And their hope is dashed. And their faith is weak. And their words are angry. And they don't see God. 
God loves those people too. And He wants to shepherd those people through so that even in the midst of their circumstances, His providence can become bright. Pain doesn't always end, my friends, but it can soften over time. There is always an end to dark providence. And we see that in this story. Now, there is an ultimate end to dark providence. (laughs) We call that death. It's a day when we leave this world and we enter into the presence of God. But what about the long, dark providences and the difficulties and the sufferings that we face? Naomi was suffering under this for at least 10 years. What about your own life? How do you, in the midst of dark providence, in the midst of a life that is experiencing pain, separation, sometimes depression or hopelessness or despair or fear or want, How do you navigate through those dark waters? How do you get to that place where God's providence is bright? Well, just, I want to give you two points of application quickly. The first is interpret providence, dark or bright, interpret providence through Scripture, not through your own lens, not through your own wisdom, not through your own ability to determine what is right and what is wrong. Remember, Ruth is taking place in the time of Judges, the very last verse in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When we try to interpret providence through our own eyes and we believe what we're doing is right, you see the result. You see the consequences. Interpret providence through Scripture. Do you remember Psalm 73? Asaph? John John Murray says this about, about this issue. Far more important than any explanation for our suffering is nearness to God in our experience. That is what happened to Asaph. As he saw the wicked prosper and experienced the chastening of the Lord, the whole thing was too painful for him until he went into the sanctuary of God. He came into the presence of God. He listened to God's word. And then he says, I understood their end. In the midst of this dark providence where he saw the wicked prosper, Asaph says, it was was just all overwhelming, too much for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. 
this and this is the sanctuary of God for us. We interpret our providence through his word. As we sing, we sing theological songs, songs that have biblical truth as its foundation to help us interpret life, the life that we're going to once again be confronted with with when we walk out those doors in just a little bit. And we spend the rest of the, the week experiencing life as God intends and as we live in a fallen world. And we live in a fallen world. And we experience the consequences of a fallen world. And we encounter the pain of a fallen world. And we live in fallen bodies. We are redeemed. But we still live in this fallen world. And how do we interpret that? We interpret it through Scripture. There is no better place for us to be than in the presence of God. John Murray wisely said that. And then secondly, not only do we interpret providence through Scripture, let me appeal to you, don't seek to escape His providence. Don't seek to escape His providence, which is exactly what Elimelech and Naomi and Chalon and Killian, and Malon and Killian did by leaving the land of promise to go to the land of Moab. Don't seek to escape his providence. Seek to interpret his providence so that you can live under his providence in a wise and God-glorifying manner. John Murray said that people are usually more anxious to get rid of the problem than they are to find God's purpose in it. Matthew Henry said this. He said, Affliction, says Matthew Henry, are continued no longer than till they have done their work. It is evidence of a discontented, distrustful, unstable spirit to be weary of the place in which God has set us and to be leaving it immediately whenever we meet with uneasiness or inconvenience in it. Don't seek to run from God's providence. Finally, John Mary says this, God's people never sacrifice or suffer in vain. Our present suffering is an investment in future glory. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory. How soon will you find, says Robert Murray McShane, that everything in your history except sin has been for you. Everything in your history has been for you. Naomi missed that. Now, God, in his mercy and kindness, as we read chapter 2, 3, and 4, we're going to begin to see Naomi transformed. We're going to begin to see the situation transformed. 
we're going to begin to see how God's plan for the redemption of humanity is fulfilled. God is always working. As we study the final three chapters of Ruth, the narrator is going to show us the journey from dark to bright providence. And as you will soon see, this journey will end in bright providence, not just for Boaz and not just for Ruth and not just for Naomi, but for us. Because it ends in the cross. It ends at the cross. The providence of God brought all this about, this suffering and this pain and this turmoil and this despair and this struggle to get to the cross so that we could know, we could be forgiven of our sin, we could come to faith in Christ, we could be cleansed and transformed and become children of God and that we could live in the land of promise. All of this has happened. This this story, my friends, is a treasure. When you are going through dark providence, or if now you are going through a dark providence, and it could be a myriad of things, family difficulties, marriage issues, painful marriage issues, children wayward, job struggles, financial sufferings. Read the story. It's a story that ends well, as your story will end well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us stories. Lord, for showing us that ordinary men and women existed thousands of years ago that we can identify with, that we can understand, and that we can know what they've experienced and feel the pain they felt. And yet we see how you have lovingly and compassionately and mercifully redeemed all of the dark providences that you placed in their lives, that you place in our lives, that we might have the ultimate hope found in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for my church this morning. Lord, I pray that you would, for those who are feeling under a dark providence, that you would give them a fresh hope this morning and that you would give them just a a glimpse of your bright providence in Jesus' name. Amen.